Hi, I'm Clement Liu. Welcome to the second season of Just Sustainability. Kathy and I want to extend the discussion that we started in the previous episode, so we decided to meet again to follow up on some of the loose threads from our conversation for the IONE meeting. One of those loose threads involved community-based participatory research, or CBPR, and my desire to pick Kathy's brain about what she thinks about CBPR in the context of the various duties that the Academy might have to serve the public interest. I was also curious about what she thought about how junior faculty might better integrate CBPR into their scholarship despite conventions in higher ed that favor other approaches to research, and how institutions might change to better support more community-engaged scholarship. Here's that discussion. Hey, Kathy, and welcome back to Just Sustainability. Hi, Clement. Good to be back. This is the first time I've done like a, a second interview, so uh, I'm just like trying to figure out the cadence, because normally I'd ask you to introduce yourself, but you've already done that. Yeah, so I yeah. guess... Maybe we'll just start off where we left off. So um, on our last conversation at uh, for the IONE annual meeting, uh, I had asked you about your career arc, and then you ended up talking a lot about CBPR and the role of universities and other institutions of higher learning as servants to the general public. And there were a few questions at, at the moment I want to ask you, which I wrote down after, and I think maybe I'll just start by asking you those. So, uh Sure. Um, I had mentioned uh, during our last conversation that when we're talking about CBPR and uh, other participatory forms of like research or approaches to research, um, you talked a lot about community engagement and like service to the community. And that made me think, right? So we both work for the University of Minnesota, which is a land grant institution. And as I understand them, land grant institutions were developed really with a focus in mind of like creating institutions that are intended to serve uh, the communities that surround them. And so, like, I want to ask you uh, how you thought about that relationship between uh, doing CBPR and other sorts of participatory research and the duties of land-grant institutions. Absolutely. I think that um, it's not that CBPR could only serve the mission of land-grant institutions. I think mm-hmm. CBPR, um, as we talked a little bit about last time, is really um, an important approach that improves the science, creates community mm-hmm. benefit, all of those, you know, those benefits, um, which would translate into any setting. But I think for land-grant universities, this mm-hmm. is particularly um, appropriate um, because it does connect to the communities that we are, by charter, <laughs> supposed to serve, um, right. particularly the people in our state. And I think at University of Minnesota, um, that has been taken to heart. Um, Mm -hmm. It's interesting, back in the 90s when we were doing the Phillips Neighborhood Healthy Housing Project, um, people were really talking about the University of Minnesota getting back to its land-grant mission and that CBPR um, could be a pathway towards that. And it was interesting because I don't know that we ever necessarily – left or forgot our land grant mission. I think it it comes out in different ways. Certainly the extension, right. you know, service um uh plays an extremely important role. But I think people were realizing that maybe maybe we were creating pockets of engagement, like with the extension service, um, and right. saying, well that's kind of what those folks over there do. Um how does, you know, 
that doesn't really apply to me. Um, and with participatory approaches to research like CBPR and realizing that um, they can be embedded in all sorts of different topics and research designs, even, I mean, the lead project was a, was a um, randomized clinical trial, right? I mean, that's, right. <laughs> that's not your, um, nobody should be concerned about the rigor of something like that. And, um, and so CBPR could be something that works in so many different settings um, and on to- different topics, um, research right. designs, et cetera, that um, really most disciplines could figure out a way to work in a participatory way and be part of this, this land grant mission. Right. So the University of Minnesota really, I think, um, tried to embrace more of that um, and and got more serious, um, you know, creating the Office for Public Engagement and bringing mm-hmm. in an Associate Vice President for Public Engagement. And um, that office in collaboration with a number of us who do you know, we're doing this sort of work, you know, really tried to create some some institutional change, um, tried to build capacity doing, you know, trainings around community-based participatory research. Um, and, you know, my angle on that is how to help folks doing that work be more successful um, mm-hmm. in their career arcs um, at the university. So I think that our land-grant university um, has, from the top, really embraced engaged approaches, participatory approaches. Um, But there are parts of the university that have not sort of gotten on that bandwagon, that have not really Mm. uh, caught up. Um, There is still some marginalization of faculty who do this work. Um, There are faculty in pockets of the university who feel like they are disadvantaged um, in their career advancement and promotion and tenure system. Um, so we, we have a ways to go. But I would say that, yes, CBPR has definitely been looked at something that is a one approach, not the only approach, but one approach to le- leaning into um, living into our land grant mission. Um, several things uh, you said make me think of a, a follow up question. So given that, again, we both work in uh, the University of Minnesota. And uh, if the data about my listeners is correct from the, the various things that provide me data. It seems that a lot of the listeners are also uh, either in Minnesota or I would suspect actually uh, employees of the University of Minnesota. Um, do you have any advice for uh, folks who are thinking about, you know, incorporating CBPR into the research that are part of the same institution we are at or for administrators who are thinking about supporting this sort of research? What are some of the things that, right, I guess as a researcher, someone might do uh to be more successful in incorporating CPPR into their work, uh, both just sort of like, you know, methodologically is how do you do it, but also thinking about those sometimes uh, existing barriers that um, might make CBPR be something that's uh, a little scary for someone thinking about uh, a tenure portfolio. Mm-hmm. And then on the other end for like administrators who are thinking about like how to support this sort of more engaged research. Yeah. Uh, amongst the folks that work within their units? So I'll parse that question maybe a little bit and take it a a little bit um, one at a time. I I think that for folks who want to do this work and are Mm -hmm. like, how do I even start? Um, It's it's important to remember that this is really about relationships and how do you build the relationships 
in a in an authentic and trustworthy way should be the first question I think that anybody asks. Um, and so when when people ask me about you know how do I if I don't have pre existing relationships in a community, how do I build those? Um, and do I come in with an agenda, a request? Do I not? You know that sort of thing. And I think it's mm-hmm. a little bit of a case by case basis. But um, really, if you're starting from scratch, I advise folks to to become active in the community, serve, volunteer in some way with no expectation for uh, something, you know, um, good to happen as a result of that, but just, you know, embed yourself in the fabric of that community with Mm -hmm. no agenda, hang out, get to know the people. Um, And then I think you can progress to... um, Asking for some relationship brokering, you know, Hmm. people know people, you could talk with people who you've been starting to get to know about your interests. And do they know anybody that might share your interests? Could they make an introduction for you? Hmm. Um, And, and then, you know, doing good informational interview practice, which is always asking who else can you introduce me to? Um, And so that your network, you know, continues to grow. But again, still doing that from a perspective of learning and not from, you know, an agenda, you know, um, asking for something. Um, So you're you're still in giving and learning mode. And then I think you can start to um, launch conversations that are about what your interests are, what your goals are, um, you know, what you would what you're doing in your career and and try to find some some common ground are there some mutual goals mutual interests mutual values that might form the groundwork for some sort of a collaboration mm-hmm. um i think it's it's a negotiation um or a balance what would meet the community defined need um what would mm-hmm. draw on your expertise and interests what do you have to offer um so that you're you're always, you know, trying to create that balance between um, the the benefit to the community and what you would like to do, you know, in your career. And doing this engage, early engagement process needs to be one where it's not transactional, it's not manipulative, it's not, you know, my ulterior motive is, you know, getting this grant that I, you know, want to start working on next month or whatever. It's got to be a a genuine um, interest and concern um, for the community members and the issues that they say are important. So it makes me think, right, there's an element of really taking some time to reflect on what it is that you're hoping to accomplish and then thinking more broadly about it. I I think it's really easy, particularly given the way a lot of folks who are uh, in academia are trained to like think really kind of narrowly about like research questions. But it seems to me that being successful at CPPR involves thinking more outcomes to do with the world, thinking about your own commitments and passions for those, and then working on those more generally, and then perhaps finding research projects that spin off of that. Does that sound mm, interesting? So that's really, that's fascinating. I've never really thought about it quite that way, but I think you're right that, um, getting getting interested in and feeling passionate about a a larger grand challenge you know kind of thing mm-hmm. something that's really affecting the community society the world and seeing 
how does this probably place-based microcosm of a community academic collaboration let you sort of live into that in a way that you can kind of share the values um, with individuals and organizations that might be different, you know, than you. Mm-hmm. Um, it's sort of like the, the the higher up you go, the more abstract you get, the more likely you are to say, yeah, we can all agree on that. You know, it's like, how does it shake out in the specifics that, that folks tend to get um, a little bit more um, distant, you know, um, right. you know, start to develop uh, ideas and opinions that are, are disparate from each other. Um, but I think, oh, shoot, I just lost my chain, train of thought, Clement. Um, there was something that you said mm-hmm. or something that you That's said a minute right. ago that was like, oh, I'm going <laughs> to make a connection there. And I don't remember what it was. So, See, who was I talking about? Uh, see, I was talking about um, finding research. Th- right. So, like, I think being reflective and thinking about why you're interested in the research you are and then thinking about the sort of the grander objectives um, and then thinking about how you serve those and then letting the research fall out of that. That's, I think that's the general thought I was thinking, right? Rather than, you know, starting at the, oh, this grant. So like, so like, I think maybe the way I was thinking about this is uh, a piece of advice I always got about like writing um, as a, a, you know, a philosopher is you find the journal you want, see what kind of publications they have and then build your article based on like what that journal is looking for so that you most successfully uh, publish. Right. So like in some ways that seems to me Mm -hmm. to be letting the tail wag the dog, right. You're letting the forum for your publication kind of shape your research. It strikes me that like CBPR, particularly if you're wanting to have like real authentic relationships with the communities you're working with involves actually caring about the thing first and then, Right, the the topic that you you want that you're working on, or the air problem, or the area you're working on, and then figuring out like what sorts of uh, research makes sense in collaboration, partnership with the the folks who are working on those problems on the ground. I think that's absolutely true. It's it's like with grant getting, you know, mm-hmm. the bad strategy is trying to um, say, oh well, here's here's a grant mechanism. Let's develop something to get that money. Mm-hmm that doesn't really have anything to do with, you know, what we do or what our capacities are. It's just chasing money, you know, Um, the the more effective strategies to have a really solid idea and then figure out who's aligned with this idea, who would be excited to, to fund this. And then of course you, you craft things so that they, you frame them and and that sort of thing so that they, they align with a a funder's priorities. But um, the tail wagging the dog, I think is um, a recipe for no one being particularly (laughs) interested in in um or dedicated to it um because you're doing it for you know external motivation reasons as opposed to internal motivation reasons so i think you're absolutely right about that um you you had asked me a part two of of this question um about like if you are an administrator or a sort of senior faculty member not the person you know doing engaged research how might they support people who are. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is a super important question because um, that support can can happen at multiple levels. So at at the top level, I would say, you know, those who develop, write the policies around things like promotion and tenure Mm -hmm. control a lot of what happens um, 
as you sort of trickle down to junior faculties, you know, careers. Mm -hmm. And so those established folks who are in decision-making roles um, really need to educate themselves about the benefits of participatory approaches, the challenges to the faculty member for doing those you know, sorts of approaches, particularly the challenges that the promotion and tenure system mm. presents um, to those folks. And how can they, as people who have influence, try to break down those those barriers? Um, you know, how can they, you know, either get language um, into their departmental guidelines that um, basically say, here are the things that we value, and it's a big tent. You know, yeah. you can interpret this a little bit more broadly um, in terms of who your audiences are and your modes of communicating with them. It doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, the original research art- article published in a high-impact peer-reviewed journal, you know, right. kind of thing. Um, but then I think there's also mentoring and being a, a – a support and a and a sponsor um, for junior faculty, so that you are, I went maybe not sponsor, but a champion. Mm. You know, someone who is saying um, to others that may not understand the kind of work that person is doing, the impact that it does or could make, and why it's worth right. <laughs> the investment in in time and energy, um, and so that they can be. Um, an advocate um, for that faculty member and, and educate their peers, perhaps their more senior peers who are less likely to be well-versed in these matters um, and these approaches um, based on when they went through grad school and, you know, the kind of research that they've likely done throughout their careers. So, um, so educating oneself and um, stepping up to be an advocate for community engaged research peers, I think is, is really, really important. Um, my next question is sort of a, a left field question because, uh, yeah, I mean, it, I guess it relates to something you said a while ago. <laughs> Immediately, it's sort of kicking around my head, and I think it's just sort of uh, born fruit. Um, so, uh, really early on, when you were answering my previous question uh, about like engaging in, uh, or for people who are just starting to engage in CPPR and how to approach it, you had talked about building authentic relationships. Um, and I was thinking, right, like there's, the relationships that people in higher ed uh, have with communities tends to be really fraught, right? Like I think there has been too much of the, right. The chasing money sort of doing projects that really don't fit with anybody's real interests other than like a funding agencies that's led to often really poor relationships between uh, institutions and communities, right? Like I, I find that particularly with marginalized communities, there's often the thought like, Oh, here's more researchers coming to study us rather than folks that are actually doing anything to help us. Um, how do you navigate that relationship? How do you like build those, uh, those relationships across those differences and across those tensions? Well, I think that it's all about trust sure, and, Trust comes out of how you treat people. Mm-hmm. And if you do what you say you're going to do, you know, those sorts of behaviors um, right. on the part of a researcher. And I think the, f- the first lens you need to put on is that what I do now mm-hmm. in this relationship with these community members or this organization is not just something that affects our immediate collaboration and our chances of, of working successfully together, mm-hmm. it likely 
either lays a foundation, a healthy foundation for, or poisons the well right. for others that would would come behind you. Um, and so hopefully you have benefited from people before you that thought that way and did everything that they could to form trusting relationships and not poison the well. Otherwise yeah. you are really, you know, behind the eight ball and you need to do repair, you know, as right. opposed to um, just establishing, establishing trust. Um, but I think that where it comes from is first really demonstrating that you it, it kind of goes back to forming the partnerships, you know, right. um, what we talked about a minute ago in terms of going in without an agenda, mm-hmm. just in listening and learning mode. Right. Um, and people think about this in, in a couple of different ways. The, the trust that you built through your authentic, trustworthy, respectful, power-sharing behavior right. and your commitment to mutual benefit, making sure that the community is benefiting at least as much as you or the science or the institution is benefiting. Mm-hmm. That lays this groundwork for trust. And that trust, in a way, can be transferred to other people, to it reflects on the institution, it can shift, you know, how people think about the institution. Mm-hmm. But in another way, sometimes community members will say, mm, you can't really ride on the coattails of, of somebody else. Um, you need to do the work each and every time of building your own relationship right. of trust. Um, it's a case-by-case thing. Just because we trusted so-and-so and so-and-so vouched for you doesn't necessarily mean that we're immediately going to trust you. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, there's, there's benefit in... In, in having brokered relationships where people can vouch for you, and there is certainly benefit in leaving a trail of trust behind you when you do this work, but there's also a really important commitment necessary to building your own relationships of trust and not assuming that just because it worked out for someone else um, or, you know, generally in the past relationships have been good that mm-hmm. you don't need to invest your own effort in, in building those trusting relationships. Mm-hmm. Well, that strikes me. Your answer. Oh, my dog has gotten really excited about something. <laughs> your answer, <laughs> uh, okay. Your answer uh, makes me think of something, right? I, I, I had earlier asked about like institutions and like administration and things, but that, that seems like an area where uh, thinking about institutional policies, uh, uh, particularly around like, tenures uh tenure and like promotion and like sort of the tenure clocks right and the what you have to get done at certain times uh there seems to be room to to make changes to facilitate that right so like folks on a tenure clock who's thinking about just pumping out publications uh so that they can get enough publications right done in the the time frame that they need uh probably aren't taking the time to do the relationship building in a good way. And I think thinking about how to, you know, facilitate the work that goes or how to recognize the work that goes into facilitating relationships uh, into sort of the work that's considered as counting towards tenure might be something that, right. uh, Would be helpful for encouraging this sort of research. 
Yes, I think there's a number of approaches that are both at the policy level, so to speak. You know, how does that promotion and tenure system work? Mm -hmm. And then I think there's also strategies that the individual faculty member can use. So let me just talk about the um, the individual faculty member for a minute. Mm -hmm. um, it is really important to invest time in building those relationships that time is not wasted in terms of the benefit that will accrue later um, in terms of smoother sailing and, um, you know, a quality collaboration. You just can't get that if you rush into this. You, um, If you're rushing people, then you are following your own agenda rather than their agenda. Right. Um, and so it's it's not going to, it's just not going to fly. But there's a tension there because as a as a faculty member, you are um, you're on a clock, mm -hmm. um, you're on a timeline, um, and at least for some folks, that is a very stressful situation because if you don't make that timeline, it has um, significant career negative career consequences. Right. So one of the strategies that um, I advise people to think about is sort of twofold. One is just like a financial advisor would tell an investor, have a balanced portfolio. Don't put yeah. all of your stock in, you know, one <laughs> one company, for example. I tell people, don't make all of your work participatory research. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's important in particularly the early stages of your career that you are pursuing and demonstrating a little bit more of sort of the traditional disciplinary pathway and publishing um, in the journals that your mm -hmm. peer reviewers will recognize. And, um, you know, checking a few boxes for folks that say that that will help them see, oh, yeah, you know, this, this is someone who's making an impact on our field. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, balance that with these earlier stage efforts to build the relationships, um, uh, maybe do some pilot work with communities or, you know, that sort of thing where you're, you're percolating that, you know, a little bit on the side mm -hmm. and, um, and then go all in, you know, once you've established credibility in the traditional way, mm -hmm. or you've gotten promoted or tenured, then you can really lean into um, the community-based work. Mm -hmm. I don't, um, advise. I don't like when deans or department chairs basically say, don't do this work at all until after you're tenured. Right. I think that that is a way to um, really create <laughs> disenfranchisement and disillusionment on the part of the, the faculty member that they're waiting right. uh, years and years. You know, It could be up to a decade or something like that before they get into the really meaningful, personally relevant work that they were passionate about getting into. And yeah. they're more likely to leave the field, leave academia, um, and, you know, certainly not be happy and not mm. be happy in their teaching role either. Um, and so I like when people are trying to build this in the early parts of their careers, but they're doing it in a way that is, um, that has a safety net, you know, mm. sort of attached to it. Um, by making sure that they are, you know, following at least some of the, the traditional guidelines. Mm -hmm. So, um, so that's, I think what the, the faculty member can do, um, on, Oh, one more thing about that though, really, mm -hmm. really important is recognizing that these early stages 
relationship building, getting over some of these challenges and hurdles. It could be, it could be quite fraught. It could be, um, if you, if you take a (laughs) a little bit more clinical stance or more, more of a a participant observer stance, you could Mm -hmm. look at that and say, well, this is actually really interesting what we're going through here. Right. Um, let's look at why this is happening and how we're managing this. What, what are we doing to try to get over this? How did it work? You know, right. sort of take a researcher perspective on the process right. that you are going through. And that can form the basis for scholarly products right, right. that allow you to get something published during those early years. Right. I mean, this is actually something I've noticed, right? So for a lot of people who do CPPR, a lot of the early publications are methodology papers about relationship mm-hmm. building and like how do you actually get into the process and why the process is powerful. Yeah, absolutely. And you have to be a little bit careful because it used to be that, um, well, people would say one of the challenges is that this takes a long time. Mm -hmm. Okay, we know that. (laughs) Nobody (laughs) needs to say that anymore. Don't publish on how long it takes. It's not going to get accepted for publication. No. Or at least it's not going to make an impact on on the field. But um, I often use the example of one of my junior colleagues in the Department of Pediatrics who Mm -hmm. does work with um, women in the prison system and um, typically incarcerated mothers. And she's wanted to approach that work in a participatory way, sharing power with with these incarcerated women. Mm -hmm. And that is really interesting because this is a population that has had their power stripped from them. So what are the practical, logistical, theoretical, ethical, moral issues that are bound up in doing that work how can how can my colleague do that work in an authentic way given Mm. the context that um these incarcerated women are in Mm. and that is fascinating fodder i think for people who do participatory research or people who work in um in the criminal justice system. And so I, I really encourage faculty to think broadly about what they could find material um, to publish on. I, my, this colleague of mine, we sort of have this little running joke that um, a number of years ago, she asked me to listen to a 10 minute presentation that she and her community partner were giving in North Minneapolis. And she said, I'm, I need to figure out how to start being productive. Um, and I'm not sure what to make of where we're at right now. Mm-hmm. Can you just listen and see if anything you know, comes to mind? Mm-hmm. So I listened to their 10-minute presentation. And at the end of it, I handed her a list with 23 topics that right. she could publish on. <laughs> um, because there was so much interesting stuff happening yeah. in that relationship with the with the partner with the prison system with individuals in the prison system with the incarcerated women etc there was just a lot there and yeah. so that's what i really encourage people to think about is how do you pull scholarship out of engagement when you're not yet doing the work right, right, right. that is going to lead to quote unquote results that you can publish um so that's i think super super important well and I think, right, it, it it fills a gap that exists in a lot of traditional scholarship, right? So, like, I think traditional scholarly publications tend to focus on results. They don't focus on process nearly as much, right? Like, there's, there's method sections and papers, but those tend to be glossed over in terms of, like, right, so folks can focus on the results and the discussion. And so, and I think, right, the the extended sort of period of time that folks have to work through these 
problems when it comes to CPPR opens the opportunity to think more about process and think about like, how do we do process or how do we have better processes, right? Yes. And I think that there are more and more journals that are interested in that. Mm -hmm. There may not be as much interest in your traditional disciplinary journal, Mm -hmm. but the community engagement journals, there's new ones coming out every year. Mm -hmm. I I can't even keep track of how many of them are (laughs) are coming out. There's there's interest in understanding how to do this work well, the impact that it can have um, at all sorts of different levels on different stakeholders. Mm -hmm. And it's not so much the topic that you're working in. It's a little bit more about, um, you know, we're, we're all interested in this process. What can we learn from each other's um, failures and successes in in doing participatory work. Mm-hmm. So I think there are venues for publishing these kinds of stories, um, you know, qualitative assessments of process, um, you know, those sorts of things. They're mm-hmm. just not as likely to be in your your disciplinary journals. Mm-hmm. I also want to stress that there are um, non traditional products of scholarship that are are ways that I think. I'm going to start to get into like, how can we change the system here a little bit? But I I think there are ways that we can communicate to diverse audiences, academic and the public and Mm -hmm. specific practitioner audiences, et cetera, through something other than a manuscript, a published paper. And um, they can be very creative. They can be very impactful. They could be readers theater scripts i have a colleague who's working on one right now with a a group of community members fascinating public theater you know sort of thing to to educate um members of a community about a health condition and a research project yeah um could also be things having to do with um a documentary of the process, you know, a documentary of interviews of all the stakeholders to, mm-hmm. to really understand what was this process? Where was there, pro- where were the problems? How was trust established? You know, that is a fascinating story to tell in a fascinating way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that there are, in, there are more and more audiences that are interested in learning about those processes in these interesting ways. Mm-hmm. The challenge, and this is now getting into the systems piece, which was an earlier question of yours, was how do we make those sorts of things count right. um, in the promotion and tenure system? And I think that um, it's a two-way street. The faculty need to meet the promotion and tenure guidelines halfway, at least, and the promotion right. and tenure guidelines need to meet the, the engaged faculty member halfway. So having in promotion and tenure guidelines language that is flexible about the kind of product Mm -hmm. that could result from scholarly work is really important. If you only see that manuscripts, H factors, you know, impact scores, you know, if that's the only language that you see in a promotion and tenure guideline, then it really closes the door to Mm -hmm. this sort of creative work um, that really could benefit community members as well as um, as the academic field. Mm-hmm. So so there's the the policy end needs to create a little bit bigger tent. Mm-hmm. The folks who are doing the review of their colleagues need to understand this work well enough to see how it fits, mm-hmm. um, how it addresses disciplinary issues, the impact that it's making. They need to understand how it's aligned with the flexible, bigger tent that is the, the PNT guidelines. Mm-hmm. That means that we need to be training our 
promotion and tenure committee members, which we don't do anyway, but we, <laughs> we really need to train them in understanding community engaged scholarship. Mm-hmm. Um, and we need to make this at least something that all of our peers, whether they serve as um, peer reviewers on a P&T committee or not, mm-hmm. they all need to be at least understanding of what this is, even if they're not interested in doing it themselves. They need to see the value of it and they need to understand uh, what makes quality community engaged scholarship so that they can, without bias and without ignorance, um, you know, fairly judge um, their peers. Right. The other thing that is um, would be a big shift in some parts of universities is more standard in other parts is creating multiple pathways to career advancement. Right. So, for example, at our own university in the academic health sciences, we have multiple pathways to promotion, one of which is tenure track. So the tenure track faculty member is is going to be the more traditional, you know, research, research, publish, publish, get grants, you know, that, that pathway. And they're ready for, and they're producing in a way that is going to fare well, according to the traditional promotion and tenure criteria. Mm -hmm. But then there are, for instance, the academic track, which you could have a research focus, Mm -hmm. but that big tent, you know, lots of different products would count, the engaged approach would count, Mm -hmm. the public dissemination and public dialogue around um, research and science and, you know, those sorts of things would count. You know, it's it's not that it's less rigorous, it's just different, mm-hmm. but it's not got the demands of kind of the publisher parish that the the tenure track does. Mm-hmm. And then we have other ones. Um, you could have a teaching focus, you could have a clinical focus if you're if you're doing clinical work. And I think those I'm on one of those pathways. Mm-hmm. I'm um, uh, a full professor in the academic track with a research focus. and that was um, a decision I made given the era that I was doing this work in, right. in particular. Um, but it it is a path forward to reaching, you know, the highest rank at the university for faculty and being able to do this community-engaged work, this interdisciplinary work, public scholarship work in a way that is seen as on mission with the criteria that, you know, I'm being held accountable mm-hmm. For. Right. Well, and then it's good that right our institution has those different tracks, given the sort of institution we are. Right. I mean, I, I think that I, I think there needs to be broader recognition across the right the uh, I guess all of higher ed that there there needs to be different ways that folks can approach scholarship. Yes, and I would I would suggest that maybe taking a page from like the academic health center's approach might be mm-hmm. something that other departments or colleges might adopt um, mm-hmm. in a way that would fit you know, their set of disciplines. There are challenges to that. And um, I think that there's, unfortunately, in academia, there's a pecking order. Um, mm-hmm. And we, we need to sort of fight against the, well, the tenured faculty member is more important or more valuable, or they've done more rigorous work or whatever than the full professor who's on, you know, an academic track um, so that we don't have sort of a second class citizen, you know, kind of an approach. Um, Mm. That has certainly been something that our own university and universities across the country have struggled with. Um, 
I think we just need to keep working, you know, at this. And mm-hmm. I think the more that we can educate people about actually the enhanced skill that is required in doing this kind of work, um, the more people will understand the value and the expertise and the competence of their peers who do community engaged work. I mm-hmm. when I, when I do trainings on career advancement as community engaged scholars. I I put up this series of slides that's all about how we were all trained traditionally to mm-hmm. do, you know, our work in a scholarly way and to communicate with certain audiences. And then I put up a very long list of the additional ways that over and above those ways that we were all trained and that we all do our work. A community-engaged scholar also needs to have a second set of skills and do additional work that you know meets that community-defined need that you know communicates to those audiences in ways that are going to create community impact that uh, balances scientific rigor with you know community benefit, et cetera. It's a taller task um, right. or a taller order for the community engaged scholar, they should be getting more cred, (laughs) more, more (laughs) respect uh, than uh, they do, um, at least equivalent, you know, to Mm. the traditionally trained and traditionally functioning faculty member. um, Because the community engaged faculty member can do that work, too. They're just doing, um, you know, different work over and above. And so um, I'm really, you know, trying to get people to think about um, our community engaged scholar peers as being really worthy of respect and admiration for their ability to navigate these very complex relationships um, to communicate in ways that many of us were not trained to communicate in um, and to um, approach and dig into issues that are really complex and often fraught and, you know, do that with, uh, trust and authenticity. One, well, I think there's the, also the other side, right? There's, I think there's a, a cultural sort of trope amongst those of us who are scholars where, you know, um, we're enculturated to think that the okay. best job is a tenure track research job I, coming out of grad school. Uh, right. That I think a lot of, you know, newly minted PhDs think that if, uh, they've succeeded when they've landed that tenure track job right. and then really succeeded when they've landed tenure. Um, to the point where like sometimes like so i also am not in the traditional tenure track right so like my promotional track is as an administrator in our office of equity and um so that's led to sometimes like friends from grad school or like old uh uh old like mentors and like uh you know supervisors from like postdocs and like phd asking me like am i happy doing what i'm doing do i if i do i feel underemployed i'm like no, right? Like, I really love what I do. I love this freedom to be able to, like, work in these, like, these spaces where uh, a traditional tenure track uh, faculty can't because they have to worry about getting tenure and they have to worry about promotion. So they have to do things that sort of fall outside of my interest, right? I get to do kind of exactly what I'm interested in because I'm in a position where the the things I'm interested in are actually the the things that would get me promoted. Right. Yeah, the flexibility is fantastic. Mm-hmm. At this point, our conversation switched gears, so I'll end this episode here. To review, Kathy and I spoke about how CBPR is a tool for institutions to better discharge their duties to serve the public interest, how junior faculty might approach integrating CBPR into their work in ways that help them earn tenure and promotion, 
and how institutions might modify their practices and conventions to better encourage CBPR. Join me again next episode, where I'll complete the conversation that I had with Kathy Jordan. Thank you for listening to Just Sustainability. If you've enjoyed what you heard, please support this podcast by subscribing and leaving a review. Just Sustainability is recorded with the support of the Institute in the Environment at the University of Minnesota. In particular, I want to thank Peter Levin and Beth Mercer-Taylor for all their help with this show. All the music on Just Sustainability is composed and recorded by Clifton Nesseth, and all the artwork was created by Kristen Nesseth. Thank you again for listening.